0: Thanks so much for having me and my family here. Uh, really grateful. It's um, it's always a, a really cool experience to go and worship with another church, uh, a like-minded church, gospel-centered church, uh, because it just immediately feels like home. It's it's an amazing thing that it can be normal to hear the things that we're all hearing this morning and say those things to God. Know that they're true. Um, it's an incredible experience. So. Uh, I know there's a bit, are you guys hearing that ring? Okay, I'm just going to power through it and let smart people do their jobs. All right, because I, I know I can't do anything about it. So uh, yeah, I, I do so appreciate somebody got smart. That was great, thank you. Yeah, quick and smart. Uh, so as Lance mentioned, we've known each other now for four years uh, and uh, and the way we met was through Lance's Acts twenty nine application process, um, and from uh, and from that moment, I think we we had a, a certain bond that the Lord created there, and we've and just been friends. He's working, don't worry. All right, just been friends, and uh, and and it's been a really mutually beneficial friendship. Uh, So grateful for Lance and grateful for your other elders and for all of you guys. Uh, Lance mentioned you guys have become supporters of my family as we're preparing to go to Thailand. Uh, So because you are supporters, uh, there's even more kind of uh, affection for you and me um, because you've decided to partner with us and help us get to Thailand. but I know that the reason why is because you all believe in the same things we believe in uh, and, and want to see people in Thailand come to know Jesus. So uh, because you believe in it, because you're giving, because you're helping and encouraging us, uh, let me tell you a couple of things that, uh, that maybe answer the question, why Thailand? And then we'll move into John chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to throw a number at you that's the number that grabbed my attention and, and made me start paying uh, attention to Thailand. 99.8. 99.8. That's the percentage of people in Thailand who do not know Jesus, have never heard about Jesus. If you were to mention Jesus, it would be like, what's a Jesus? 99.8% of people in Thailand are unreached, untouched by the gospel of Jesus. Uh, we obviously want to see Jesus fix that. We want to see that, uh, that percentage drop tremendously. And we realize that that is not going to be a work of ours or a work of yours. That's going to be a work of the Spirit of God moving across a place, empowering His people that He has uh, in that place to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches. Uh, so our, our mission in going to Thailand is not to go and save Thailand. Thailand. Uh, That's obviously impossible. Our mission is to go and be obedient to the Lord, uh, to seek to be useful to the Lord, to be empowered by the Lord, um, and hopefully see him do things that are really great for his name among Thai people, which would include, as kind of a core principle of our mission and something you're supporting, obviously two really important things. One thing is we want to learn how to speak Thai so that we can preach the gospel in Thai, make a disciple in Thai, and that's when we'll really feel like we're, we're moving, that something is happening, when we can proclaim God's truth in the Thai language. It's a really, really hard language. I could share stories with you of people who have tried it and really embarrassed themselves, but I'm not sure in mixed company we could tell those stories here, so we'll just pass on that. And just suffice it to say, it's a hard language, it's a tonal, almost a musical language, so it's not just about vocabulary and tenses, it's about the tone of your voice, super hard. So we're going to be devoting probably the first two years uh, to learning the language full time. I'll be going to school learning the language so that we can learn to preach the gospel in Thai. In fact, the Lord's uh, made arrangements that we didn't know about, and it turns out that the... Uh, director, the owner of the Thai language school that I'm going to be going to, is actually a, a believer, a Thai believer, and you you already know 99.8 among 68 million people. You can imagine how rare it is to come across a Thai believer. She is the director of the language school that I'm going to be going to. So uh, incredible thing that the Lord's done there. And and when I was there in February. Um, Talking to her about the language school, she said, Well, why are you here? Why do you want to learn Thai? And I said, Well, I'm a missionary. My church is sending me here to preach the gospel and to introduce people to Jesus. And she said, Oh, that's great. So you want us to teach you Thai so that you can teach the Bible? It's like, That's a thing? You can do that? So that's, that's the program that I'll be in. Uh, so uh, so evangelizing, making disciples is, is obviously a super important part of what we're going to be doing there right from the outset. The other thing that I'll be doing is working with Acts 29, the church planting network that you all are a part of. Uh, there are a few Acts 29 members, that is like church planters, men who are assessed and approved to plant churches in Thailand. That team is coming together even just over the last year. It went from one to it'll be five when I show up. So the Lord's doing something there. Uh, But as soon as I show up, I'll be kind of the most experienced Acts 29 person there just in terms of relationship to the network. So I'm working with Emerging Regions Network which is our kind of 1040 window effort in Acts 29. Be working with them to really develop the team there and, and here's, the, here's that core principle that I was getting at. Uh, we don't believe that we will be the church planters necessarily, but we're hoping to see Thai believers plant churches so that Thai people can meet Jesus. So that, that's, the, that's the real kind of driving passion, is to see them grow up in Christ and, and become uh, church planters, which looks typically different than this. This would be an absolute mega church. In Thailand, for real. Uh, so if really, if there's uh, two or three gathered in Jesus' name and he's there also, that means something real serious in Thailand. Because a lot of times believers are in twos and threes, not in twos and three hundreds. Uh, so really encouraging to be here with you. Uh, that's kind of my official update, if that suffices, okay? And, uh, and we would love to just hang out, talk about Thailand with you, Uh, talk about what the Lord's doing really all across Southeast Asia. There are exciting things, and we're hoping to see the Lord do even more so that he'd be named and known and glorified among them. We just want to be part of what he's doing. So John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. uh, I'm calling the next, I don't know, half hour that we have together, Jesus the humble king. Jesus the humble king. I know that Uh, This is the triumphal entry, and it's nearly blasphemous for me to not title the sermon that. Uh, But that's really a part of church history has named this passage that. uh, There's nothing in the Bible that says this is the triumphal entry. In fact, it's, it's almost oddly misleading to call it triumphal because he was on a donkey, and when he got there, they killed him. It's not in a natural sense, doesn't feel really triumphal, and yet with spiritual eyes and ears and hearts, we understand why it's triumphal, how it was that Jesus was triumphant in this moment. So um, I know that we just read it, but it's a shorter passage, and this is just the way I kind of get into things. I'd like to read this with you again, and then if you would bear with me, I'm going to ask the Lord for some help while I stand here with you. So John 12, starting verse 12 again. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The world has gone after him. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are asking you for no less right now than that you would teach us. By your Holy Spirit, will you speak to each of our hearts? Would you cause us to understand your word? Would you cause us to understand Jesus in this passage? Would you cause us to understand our own hearts in light of this passage and to know how it is that we can better know you, worship you, walk with you, proclaim your lordship, your authority, your royalty in a really truthful and sincere way. Please help us, Lord. Speak prophetically to us now. Cut to the heart. Encourage and build us up in our faith, please so that you would be magnified honored glorified pleased with us pleased with our hearts with our worship we ask for it in Jesus name amen thanks okay so what i would like to point out to you this morning and just kind of journey through this passage recognizing is really four perspectives Four perspectives that you can see in this passage, even though it's short, you can see how John, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is teaching us and pointing out different perspectives, different angles that people were watching this unfold through. Four perspectives. So, we're going to look at the crowd, of course. We're going to look at the disciples. We're going to look at those enemies of the cross, the Pharisees who were gathered around at a distance watching these things happen. And then we're gonna look at Jesus. The crowd. The crowd here in this passage gets a really bad rap historically. We've even mentioned it this morning that it's it's very possible, even potentially likely, that many of the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the same people that cried, crucify him. Very potential. Very probable. The, the Bible doesn't say exactly that there were people in the crowd who were also in the next crowd. But it's, it's, a, it's a real possibility because both of them were crowds and ancient cities just weren't that big. So there's, there's real potential there. The crowd. They had heard of Jesus and they had hoped that he was going to do something great for them. That's why they were there. We even know from the passage that many of these people were gathered there because they had heard Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Some of those people from Bethany were here in this crowd now. And they were continuing to bear witness that they had seen Lazarus walk out of his own grave and that it was this Jesus who had done it. And then many of these people in this crowd were just there because they had heard about it. But all of them apparently were there because they believed Jesus could do something great for them. But they didn't know him. You know the difference? They believed that Jesus could do something great for them, but they didn't know him. They quoted the Old Testament prophecies in hopes that Jesus would become this political liberator. You know, Jerusalem at the time was under Roman rule, under Roman oppressive Rule Terrible. You, Rome has a reputation for being this great ancient kind of kingdom, but they were savage. They were savage in their rulership, in their ownership of their provinces. Uh, there's, you may know it if you've studied history at all. These are some of those moments when I get to put my Aggie degree to, degree to use. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. I feel a little bit more at home now. Everybody else feels a little bit more awkward. Aggies have this real, it's an art almost, at how awkward we can make other people feel. I, uh, <laughs> I just got an amen. Probably not from an Aggie. All right. Where was I? Now <laughs> let me just scan my notes here. Uh, yeah, so I, I, had a, I have a history degree, which is almost completely useless in the world, unless you're teaching history. Let me do that for about 30 seconds. Uh, Rome was, it was savage. They, they were absolutely uh, terrible in their reign at the time, when they were at the height of their uh, kingdom. And, and even as rebellions would arise, Rome had a certain tradition of crucifying those people that they had conquered for miles along the sides of the roads as people were traveling to Rome. Just along the sides of the roads, crucified bodies, birds pecking at their eyes, people crying out for help, crying out to be put to death to end their agony. This was Rome. And Jerusalem was under Roman rule. You can imagine, we need to have some sympathy here to why people would be so desperate, why Israel would be so desperate for a Messiah to come and free them from Rome. Taking all their money, taking their property, ruling them with this iron fist. Let's have some sympathy. They desperately wanted Jesus to be this political liberator. This was the benefit they were hoping to reap from from him coming into his kingdom. They so desperately wanted him to do something great for them. And that great thing they wanted was to be free as a nation from Rome. So they come out to see Jesus with their palm branches and they shouted out from Psalm 118. This is verses 25 and 26 from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew what the Old Testament said about this king who would come and, and set them free. They even added their own kind of tagline to the end of that psalm, that blessing. Even to the king of Israel. The psalm didn't say that. That was their idea even the king of Israel. They wanted Jesus to be the king that Israel had been waiting for and they thought he might be that king. They thought he might be that king. Maybe some of them even genuinely believed that he was that king, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. They thought it was an earthly kingdom that he was coming to establish. It was a kingdom made up of hearts. Jesus has said the kingdom is among you The kingdom is among you. Why? Because it's already in some people's hearts. And because he is the king and here he is. But Jesus in this really ironic, uh, really unfortunate way is the most misunderstood figure in all of human history. The king is here. The kingdom is here. But it's misunderstood. And they missed the whole point. So they wanted a king. They thought Jesus might be that king. They were enthusiastic about making him that king, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. This is the crowd. Then we have the disciples. The disciples aren't in the same spot as the crowd because the difference is they knew Jesus. They didn't know him completely. They didn't understand him completely, but they knew Jesus. They had been through three years now, With Jesus. I mean, that's basically a master's level course in Christ, isn't it? They were discipled personally by Jesus. They knew Jesus, they understood that he was Lord, but they didn't have a full understanding of what kind of king he was. Look at verses 14 through 16 in our John 12 passage. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. This is Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified refers to his resurrection, when he had been crucified and raised from the dead, glorified, and they could see him now in all of his glory and authority and victory over sin and Satan and death, after he was glorified, then, then they remembered these things and they remembered that this had been written about him. which means that in the current context, they didn't even remember that Zechariah 9.9 said that. They didn't even remember that. This is one of my favorite spots in the whole Bible. As a disciple of Jesus, I love these verses, 12 through 14, because I find it to be so powerfully relatable, so relatable. If you are a disciple of Christ, you most likely really relate to the disciples here in John chapter 12 they they know Jesus they love Jesus they've already devoted their lives they've left everything they know that he's lord and they love him they'll follow him anywhere they'll give their lives for him and yet there are things happening right in front of them that are just whew, whew, whew. <laughs> just totally missing them they just don't really get it in a real complete way yet it doesn't it doesn't detract at all from their love for him or their devotion to him but i think we are all in this constant state of discovery and revelation about jesus and the resurrection of a crucified christ the gospel is always going to be the clarifying truth that makes sense of jesus always it's the gospel If you're trying to pursue and understand and obey and walk with Christ and it's not the gospel of Christ that's helping you understand him, you will be totally lost. The whole mission, the whole point, the trajectory of your life, it will feel so chaotic and and so difficult and confusing if the gospel of Christ isn't the guiding force. They were still growing in their understanding of the gospel. So are we. So are we. I mean, I I know all the time, I'm making appeals to my own heart, to my family, to my church, to my friends, making these appeals. Remember, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times the big kind of crescendo of a two-hour counseling meeting is, you know Jesus died for you, don't you? You remember Jesus died for you? Don't you remember that he rose from the dead? Is that just a a casual truth for us now? Jesus rose from the dead. Amen, brother. Amen, sister. Glad to know that fact from history. But if we aren't translating all of our existence through the fact that he is alive, then we'll just be these disciples who love him, but are just really missing so much so much of his lordship so much of his beauty his grace his wonder his power the disciples right here don't get it yet we can relate to them we can really I think in a powerful way relate to them where they are right now they had spent every day with Jesus for three years still working on understanding him. There's grace for us, right? There's grace for us. The next perspective. So we've talked about the crowd. We've talked about the disciples now. There are different misunderstandings of him. Some of those were common misunderstandings. The disciples here, I think, still have this idea that Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government, at least locally, now here we have the Pharisees, this third perspective we're going to look at. Obviously, the scriptures don't paint a real fun picture of the Pharisees. Jesus had some really hard things to say to the Pharisees. If Jesus ever showed up personally in my life, and the thing he had to say was, you brood of vipers. I just... <laughs> Just kill me. Just kill me. I don't want to live anymore. Please say something else. Change your mind about me. Please, Jesus. These are the kinds of things that he said to them. You whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. I just so badly don't want Jesus to think that of me. Here's the Pharisees with their perspective. They hated Jesus. They hated him. And it was an irrational hate. A totally irrational hate. We know you've been walking through the book of John. You saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What was the response of the Pharisees? we got to kill this Lazarus guy. we got to get him dead again. This, this rumor of Jesus raising the dead is really spreading fast. Crowds are growing. Not let's join the crowd and exalt the resurrector of the dead. It's let's kill the undead guy. Let's make him dead again and try to undo Jesus' power, Jesus' authority over the grave. It's irrational, totally irrational, their hate for Jesus. What was this irrational nature? It was because they knew he had power from God. You see this over and over again in the Gospels. The Pharisees talking to each other. It's like he's done an undeniable sign. We can't deny that this thing happened. Just how are we going to deal with the fallout? How are we going to deal with the ramifications of people learning about what he's done? Over and over again, they're in this place. Even even this kind of leader among them, a teacher among them, uh, Gamaliel, says, Look, if he's from God, we can't stop him. If he's not, God will stop him. Even the Pharisees understood that it was irrational, their efforts at stopping Jesus, but irrational people, even when they know they're irrational, do what? Irrational stuff, right? You don't know anything about that. This totally irrational hatred for Jesus because they knew he had power from God, but he, this, is, this is really the sticking point for them He refused to play their game. If he had power from God and he was willing to play their game, great, love this Jesus guy, woo, raise the dead. But when he raises the dead and he's like, Pharisees, listen, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you and your religious elitism, your prideful hypocrisy weighing people down with these burdens, these laws, creating new rules for them about what it means to be loved and accepted by God, but not even lifting a finger to help them, Jesus says. I don't have time for you. Step aside. I've got a cross to get to. He had no time for them. He saw their hearts. He read their thoughts. He knew their motives. He absolutely terrified them. They knew he had power, but he was unwilling to play their game, join their religious club. So rather than responding to his miracles with faith, they responded with a plot to murder him in order to maintain their position of influence, as all these Pharisees were ever trying to do just desperately cling to something they thought they had gained for themselves, some standing, some respect for themselves, some honor, some glory for themselves. People think we're great. Jesus, you're really putting a dent in this image that we've created for ourselves. This idea that people need us has taken a major hit in the last three years. We need you to calm down cuz they everybody just walking around thinking they need you now. What about us? Now we're on the outside looking in. They hated him. They hated him for it. Even when he raised the dead, they just couldn't bring themselves to get over their own need to be exalted. We already saw this chapters 11 and 12. The Pharisees plots to kill Jesus. And Lazarus, in hopes of putting down all this enthusiasm about Jesus. And now, here is Jesus, according to the scripture that they do know from Zechariah, hearing crowds shout things they do know from Psalm 118 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hosanna, the King of Israel. Look at him riding on a donkey's colt. You know, Zechariah said something about that. This seems familiar. Look at them. Look at them here at the end of this passage. How exasperated they are. How frustrated they are. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another. Not to the crowd. Don't see them trying to kind of speak to the crowd. Hey, calm down. It's not what you think. They're speaking to each other. The Pharisees said to one another. You see that you're gaining nothing. You're gaining nothing. Look. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world. Now, obviously, that was an exaggeration, right? There's a crowd in Jerusalem, which at the time was this total pit of a place that nobody in civilization wanted to live. All right? You've got this crowd of people with their own customs and religion and hopes for national freedom in this little city out here, Podunk, Jerusalem, But from their perspective, their whole world was going after Jesus. Their whole world. Everything they would built for themselves. Everything they thought they had a firm grip on was being ripped out of their hands. The whole world has gone after him. You ever been in that spot? (laughs) Even specifically towards Jesus? You ever been in that spot where you're just like, You're taking everything from me. Everything I thought I had, all of my comforts, all my conveniences, everything I had built my life on, you're ripping it out of my hands. Jesus ever freak you out? Like you love him, but you're kind of scared of him too? I don't think that's wrong. He has no time for our games. He has a much more loving, gracious mission and he is persistent about it. Persistent about it. The fourth perspective. The king himself. The king himself. We see the crowds who had heard much of him but didn't know him. Disciples who knew him but didn't really understand him. Pharisees who hated him because he wasn't about their glory. And finally, we have this fourth perspective, Jesus himself, the king on the donkey. He knew what the Old Testament scriptures said about him. He knew who he was. He understood his identity. He understood his mission He was aware of Israel's clamoring for a king and their misunderstandings about him. While the crowds cheered for him, while the disciples lovingly misunderstood him, while the Pharisees filled with all-time hall of fame, historic, sinful plots to murder him, Jesus devoutly and humbly stayed the course to the cross. Let me tell you the difference between the perspective of Jesus and that of everyone else in Jerusalem. You ready for it? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. The same John who wrote John chapter 12 witnessed a vision of the future, and this is what he said. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, not a crowd outside of Jerusalem, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, amen, blessing and glory, And wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This was the perspective of Christ the King on the back of a donkey's colt as people clamored and misunderstood and hated. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew where all this was headed. He was not uninformed. Jesus has the perspective that we need so desperately. Isn't that always the case? Isn't that always the case? Can you imagine if every single moment of your life, in your joys, in your trials, in your suffering, in your confusion, can you imagine if you had a firm grip on the perspective of Christ the King Himself. If Revelation 7, 9 through 12 was always where you knew this was going, if you always knew, well, I know that I'm going to be part of a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every language gathered around God, gathered around the Lamb, the King of kings and Lord of lords, exalting and praising and glorying in Him. I know this is where this is all going. Is there any fear left? Is there any fear when we have a firm grip on the perspective of Christ Himself? The crowds didn't know this part yet. They didn't understand what Jesus understood about himself. That's why they wanted to put him on an earthly throne. That's why they thought that's what they needed from him. The disciples didn't get this part yet. That's why they stood off to the side, wondering, confused. It's why they argued about who was gonna be on Jesus's right or left hand when he comes into his kingdom. They didn't get this part yet. They didn't know there's going to be a great multitude that no one could number. They thought there was going to be a select few. The Pharisees hoped to avoid this Revelation 7 outcome at all costs. At all costs. But Jesus knew it. He knew himself, He knew His mission, He knew the ending. When we talk about the triumphal entry, the triumph of it, of course, is his royalty. It's his royalty. It's that he was coming into his kingdom. While they were all looking for him to overthrow worldly powers and enthrone himself, Jesus was going to die. It's this upside-down kingdom. This is the perspective we need. So now, what is your perspective on Jesus? I know that we just read this, so it, it'd be easy, even natural, for you to say, well, Revelation 7. You just read it, you idiot. But here, what is your perspective on Jesus? Have you heard of him? Heard some great stories of his power? Maybe, maybe even have some hope that he could make some positive changes in your life, but maybe don't really know Jesus? As it, it's, um, it's, it's such a desperately unfortunate truth that churches all across this country are filled with people who amount to a crowd, who know something about Jesus, who hope he can do something great for them, but they don't actually know him. There is hope for you if that's who you are. There's hope for you as much as it's kind of a a famous tradition of ours to point out the people who may have been in this crowd and then been in a crowd of people shouting crucify him it's also very likely that there were people in this crowd who were gathered in an upper room on the day of Pentecost there's hope for you if even now you don't know Jesus believe believe in him Believe that he died on the cross in your place to take the punishment for your sins. Believe that he rose from the dead, a living, conquering Savior and King. Turn to him. Turn to him. Live your life for him. He's worthy of all this. And all of this will end with him enthroned in power whether you believe it or not. So believe. Have you been walking with Jesus for years, a disciple of his, but still struggling with doubts and fears that he won't come through? Because your perspective is limited. And what it means for Jesus to come through may not be Jesus' idea of what it means for Jesus to come through. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you got all these plans for Jesus, you have all this power, I have some great ideas what you could do for us. I know you're waiting for my list. And when he gets your list and he's like, aw, that is so cute. Okay, here's what we're going to do. You feel like he sometimes just isn't working off of your sheet of music. A little confused about what following Jesus really is supposed to look like. there's hope for you. Remember the gospel. Remember Jesus died for you. In the same way that these disciples later on had to realize the truth of the gospel and it informed all of their memories. They remembered these things happened and it gave them hope. It gave them greater security, greater boldness to be a witness for Christ even unto their own death. They're famous for their faith in Christ, their devotion to Him. Here in John chapter 12, they don't even get it yet. There's hope for us. There's hope for us when we misunderstand. Even when we love Him, when we're devoted, when we know He's the King, but some things get lost in translation, there's hope for us. Or, Maybe you've been hearing about this Jesus for a while now and honestly, you're just ready to be done with him. Uh, I've been in church long enough to not be ignorant of the fact that you can gather a group of people together and go, it's all about Jesus and there'll be some people in the room going, Jesus, been down this road. You feel like he owes you some explanation maybe for how life has gone. Maybe you feel threatened by him because he has this unlimited power that you keep hearing about, but he doesn't seem to be about your agenda. And you made that agenda because you thought it's what was best for you. Just don't get him. Listen, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Acts chapter 15, verse 5, names believers who were of the party of the Pharisees. Did you know that? Acts 15, in a council of believers in Jerusalem, it goes, Now some of the believers who were Pharisees, what a hopeful thing to know. That even if right now you're going, Jesus, no, no, hate that guy, sick of that guy, wish everyone would shut up about that guy even if that's you right now, later down the road by an act of God's grace, you may be his disciple. You may love him. You may be devoted to him to the point of absolute joy in him. There's hope for you. Believe. Believe in that. Brothers, sisters, Jesus is the king. He didn't become the king when some people started rooting for him. That's not why this is called triumphal. That entry to Jerusalem wasn't triumphal because some people gave palm branches at him. It was triumphal because he is the king and because he was fulfilling his mission to make us citizens of his kingdom. That's why it was triumphal. We see his love here. We know the ending. Let's believe. Let's remember and trust him while we wait for that beautiful day when we will all gather around his throne to say together with palm branches in our hands, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's live for that day. Let's live for that ending. Live in light of it now. Jesus is the King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, This morning, we exalt you. We exalt you. You're worthy of all praise and honor and glory and authority and power and might and wisdom. They're yours. Lord, this morning, will you please help us to have your perspective on you. Please help us not to be a crowd Gathered around looking to gain something from Christ that's just really not what Christ came to give us. Would you please help us to be genuine, devoted disciples who are fully informed? Fully informed. Would you please? Keep our hearts from straying into that that barren land of pride and hypocrisy. To hear the truth about you proclaimed and to recoil from it. Seek to avoid it. Seek to undo it somehow. We know that that's irrational, Lord. That the response that makes sense is to worship you to devote our lives to you, to submit to you. So please help us. When we think on you as King, Lord Jesus, will you please cause us to think rightly, to think faithfully. or well, we realize that uh, if, we, if we receive the answers that we're asking for this morning, we will become a people like those disciples became. Bold, shameless, faithful, witnesses about your gospel. That we would proclaim to the world around us the truth of who you are. That we would glory in you, delight in you, speak always of you. That we would be unable to stop speaking about the things we've seen and heard from you. Help us, Lord. Create that boldness, that faith, that urgency, that wonder, that delight in us to think on you as king and to have our hearts set on fire with devotion and love for you. Fully informed and faithful. We love you, God, and we continue to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.